This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 221. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. This is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, this is the third of nine planned episodes with our Tales of the Cocktail 2017 coverage. And this time we'll talk with Jeff Quint, founder of Cedar Ridge Distillery, which was named American Distilling Institute's 2017 Distillery of the Year. We met at Dickie Brennan's Bourbon House on Bourbon Street. Amazing to me how fast the consumer adjusts to is the product good or is the product not good first let's do a book of the week and it comes to us from our friend hazel and it's beach cocktails favorite surfside sips and bar snacks she says summer may be ending in a few weeks but there's still time to up your thirst aid knowledge and add a few summary cocktail recipes to your cocktail library beach cocktails comes from the editor of the magazine coastal living which is dedicated to all things seaside inspired it features guest pleasing cocktails including mai tais daiquiris rum runners and caparingas the cocktail beauty shots and coastal scenes in the book make it a great bar shelf or coffee table book. The book features the origins and key ingredients to stock for all these cocktails. The content is fun reading and accessible to both bartenders and cocktail enthusiasts alike. Thanks for that, Hazel. We'll do a cocktail of the week and we'll do a summary drink from Cuba. It's the El Presidente. It's one and a half ounces of aged rum. Uh, I used real McCoy, five year. Three quarters of an ounce of dry vermouth. Half an ounce of orange curacao. And a bar spoon of grenadine. And the grenadine, I hope you're uh, not using that stuff that comes, that every bar has that is terrible. It's so easy to make your own. Just take some of that palm. It's like making simple syrup. Just take the uh, palm wonderful pomegranate juice and then mix that with uh, equal amount of sugar. So let's say use two cups of the palm wonderful. You want to heat that up on a stove to uh, warm it up. Add your sugar and uh, equal amounts, two cups as well. And uh, you can bring that to a simmer and uh, to thicken it up a little bit. But I wouldn't cook it too long. We'll shake that all up and strain it into a chilled coupe glass. Delicious drink. During Tales of the Cocktail this year, I attended a seminar called Avant-Garde Cocktails. It was moderated by our friend Summer Jane Bell. I always know when a tale seminar is uh, is good when I scribble notes constantly during the seminar. So uh, I, I took a lot of notes and maybe I'll just read through a little bit of it to, uh, to give you a little, maybe give you some ideas. It was all about uh, coming up with unique cocktail uh, ideas, cocktail recipes. They served us a drink in a uh, like a prescription pill bottle, and it had uh, ch- chicken stock in it and other things. So that was a pretty very unique cocktail. But uh, they talked about great way to get new perspective. Uh, think outside the box, which is an overused phrase, but does make a lot of sense, is to travel. And uh, then they said, how, do, how, how can you get that travel experience at home without traveling? Well, one is to take classes. Uh, cooking classes is just one idea. Go talk to your grandma. See what she has to say and uh, talk about your heritage. Talk about, uh, Go to art museums and other museums. Eat and drink at restaurants that are outside your comfort zone. Another overused phrase, but makes some sense, right? Uh, go Find restaurants that are exotic from different cultures. Explore your own culture. Collaborate with people in, or even better, outside of the business, of the hospitality business. Always question why. Because we always did it that way is not a good answer. Don't be afraid to fail. Not everything is going to work the first time. Why are you using that glass? Hey, what about flavored ice? I don't know. Sounds interesting. 
At the Avery in Chicago, they do an, a drink not on the rocks, but in the rocks. You may have seen this in social media. They serve an old-fashioned inside a round a cube, uh, not a round cube, uh, a round spear of ice, and you get a slingshot to open your cocktail, to, to break the ice and drink your cocktail. Uh, the gentleman from the Avery said, you get a slingshot to break it open. You're never going to forget it. Again, about collaboration, if it doesn't exist, collaborate on glassware, tools, on even in spirits, uh, music, anything. Somebody brought up the term silent hospitality. Do something the guest doesn't know you're doing. For example, a guest checked a coat with a loose button. We sewed it without telling the guest. So the guest left, and their last impression of the bar was, What? Did they fix my button? Be playful, not too serious. And that can be even more fun in a formal environment when the guests are not expecting it. It was brought up in the seminar, We want to take as much of the drink-making experience out to the table. For example, years ago I worked in a restaurant uh, where we did Caesar salad right at the table. Not that we invented that. That's an old technique in fine dining, but it's a a cool thing. Uh, I was at a restaurant in Montreal one time, and they made an amazing uh, coffee drink uh, where they took the – it was like an – I don't think it was an Irish coffee. I think they called it a – uh, something else, but uh, anyway, so it was a coffee drink, and they t- they had a ladle with the liquor, whatever it was, and they set it on fire in the ladle, and then poured it as it was flaming into the glass. Uh, it, it was amazing. I'll never forget that. Here's a quote from the seminar: "Quote, time is an ingredient in your cocktail." End quote. Well, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? If it takes too long, it can ruin the experience. Add dimensions, interactivity, for instance. Someone at the seminar said they give a temporary tattoo along with a certain cocktail. There's fire branding, which you may have seen before, but that's a really cool thing. If you can fire brand your fruit or your garnish of some sort, that's really fun with your logo or, or the name of your place. Another quote from the seminar, function is key. Don't do stuff just to do it. There should be a reason for it, end quote. Be inspired, quote. Our goal is when you bring the cocktail to the table, the guest says, what the hell is this, end quote. They then showed a picture of a cocktail served in a rain boot. Drinks should be designed to inspire an emotion. Don't forget, we are making drinks for our guests, not ourselves. What do you think of when making a new drink? Story, experience, ritual, taste, balance, flavor, visual appeal, surprise maybe. And the last quote in my notebook here from this seminar is, The experience is unique to this moment. Hey, let's check in with our friend Hazel and see what she's been up to lately. Hey, Bartender Journey fans. It's Hazel Alvarado from Bartender Journey's Back of the House team here saying hello and hope you all are having a great summer. This week's episode, we're happy to announce an event to kick off our Bartender Journey First Taste Series featuring newly opened cocktail bars. I was fortunate enough to attend the press party for the new Oscar Wilde-themed bar named Oscar Wilde opening to the public next week in the nomad neighborhood of Manhattan in New York City. The Oscar Wilde Bar is the newest venture from best friends Tommy Burke and Frank McColl, the team behind Lily's Victorian establishment with locations near Union Square and Times Square. Its name and theme was inspired from reading Oscar Wilde while growing up in counties Mayo and Monaghan in Ireland and is an homage to his friendship with Lily Langtree, the namesake behind their Lily's Bars. For the record, they also own and operate Papillon Bistro and Bar in Midtown and Ashby's down by Wall Street. While many media outlets will be highlighting the fact that this venue holds the title of having the city's longest bar at 118 and a half feet made out of carved marble at the cost of a little over $400,000, 
We at Bartender Journey were excited to get a first taste of the cocktail program designed by industry veteran Johnny Sweat. As their head mixologist, Johnny decided to ensure that in addition to the Victorian era, there would be a section dedicated to Prohibition-type cocktails. Hopefully we get them for a future episode for Bartender Journey. Walking into this massive bar, I was greeted with the Welcome Punch cocktail, My Bookie's Wife, featuring bison grass vodka, elderflower liqueur, rosé wine, grapefruit, and Peychaud's bitters served appropriately in a teacup. Fun fact, teacups were common drinkware used to serve patrons at speakeasies during Prohibition. In fact, the Oscar Wilde bar is on the site of the former headquarters of the New York City Bureau of Prohibition, and it was rumored that the mob bought the upstairs real estate to eavesdrop on agents. I took a Facebook Live video of this ornately decorated 5,874-square-foot venue that includes a standing whiskey bar and a private event space that accommodates 70 standing, 40 seated, in addition to the standing room of 320 people in the main bar. We'll have this posted on the Bartender Journey Facebook page. While reminiscent of both its sister Lily Bars, the Oscar Wilde Bar takes its decor to another level of Victorian with a $4 million price range. In fact, an earlier article from online Zion Mental Floss described the bar as reminiscent of, quote, a hoarder who deals in 19th century European art, close quote. And yet the extravagance works. Items were sourced from around the world, including an antique fireplace from the 1840s, a Belgian piano from the 1890s, a standing English clock from the 1880s, painted glass from Milan dating back to the late 19th century, marble carved in Vietnam, and bar chairs from Mexico. Additionally, there is inlay from Ireland's Hope Castle circa 1700s, and for fellow Game of Thrones fans, porcelain from Gosford Castle, the filming location for House Tully. Additionally, they consulted with an Oscar Wilde expert, as well as having two bronze statues of Oscar Wilde himself sculpted, one designed with a Guinness in his hand, and both perfect for indulging yourself in an Oscar Wilde selfie. For the record, I maintained the dignified Victorian manner and restrained myself. After taking some time to admire the space and chatting with fellow guests, I enjoyed the bar's signature cocktail, the Oscar Wilde's Potent Elixir, made with Prunier Cognac, Plymouth Gin, Guinness Syrup, Cassis, Lavender Bitters, and Champagne crafted by bartender Chris. It is as delightful as it sounds, accomplishing the sweet spot of a full-body complex cocktail that doesn't confuse your palate. I also indulged in Prohibition Manhattan, featuring Masterson's Canadian Rye, Carpano Antica, and Angostura Bitters. I didn't get a chance to try the crowd pleaser from their seasonal section, the Watermelon Margarita, featuring Bourbon Silver Tequila, Lime, Watermelon, and Cilantro in a salted rocks glass. The Victorian section also features the whimsical Fifty Shades of Dory and Grey, featuring Plymouth Gin, Cherry Liqueur, Chinese Five Spice, and Citrus, as well as the absinthe drip, served by the traditional absinthe fountain. All cocktails will be priced at $14 each. As usual, I made whiskey friends, and we decided to check out their selection of over 300 whiskeys. But in the end, I went with my signature Red Breast 12 and got to taste a dram of a friend's Highland Park fire. In addition to their whiskey selection, their wine menu is curated by beverage director Denise Perkinowski, and they feature 32 beers on tap, many from New York State. Since I was too busy chatting and dramming with my new whiskey friends and missed the random rotating plates of food, the staff was kind enough to have the plates brought to me at the bar. Speaking of food, there will be lunch and dinner service available seven days a week from 11 a.m. to 2 a.m., New York style, via a contemporary menu with farm table ingredients, such as the crispy cauliflower buffalo wings, 
battered in rice flour and tossed with a sriracha butter sauce, as well as the signature wild burger made with imported Irish beef and topped with crisp house-made pickles and chili aioli. Oscar Wilde's official opening will be next Wednesday, August 16th, and I'll be heading over with a few of my whiskey friends from the Manhattan Whiskey Club and my Whiskey and Books Club. If you're in the area, feel free to join us after 5 p.m. Or, in the words of Oscar Wilde, too much work and no vacation deserves at least a small libation. So hail, my friends, and raise your glasses works the curse of the drinking classes. Well, that's a very appropriate quote, as Hazel was attending that event and others from Patron, Michter's, and an agave sustainability and mezcal tasting event at Ku. I've been working 50 to 60 hours a week behind the bar since I got home from Tales of the Cartel. But glad Hazel got to attend on our behalf and report on it a little bit for us. All right, let's go to the Bourbon House in New Orleans. We'll eat, talk, drink. All right. So I'm Jeff Quint, I'm the owner and founder of Cedar Ridge Distillery in I'm Iowa. So, I'm always so curious, like, what what made you start this thing? Like, what was your, did you have any history in it before, or how, how did you how did you get started? Yeah, well, uh, so uh, I'm an accountant, and I've spent my career as a CFO at different companies, and um, my wife and I had a, a passion for this business, uh, actually wine and spirits. Okay, okay. And um, I had, well, I had been involved in some other businesses, uh, startups, uh, early stage stuff. And, you know, we always dropped everything, raised a bunch of money and started a company. And on this one, we said, you know what, this is going to be a lifestyle business. We're going to both keep our day jobs and we're going to get this thing started, uh, you know, kind of in our spare time, right? And so, (laughs) yeah, I know. (laughs) So I was, uh, right, I was... uh, planting vineyards uh, nights and weekends and mowing vineyards and all that. But as we started putting the vineyards in, because if you come to our property today, you'll see 10 acres of vineyards surrounding our our buildings on the top of uh, the ridge. Um, It occurred to us, here we are in Iowa, and Iowa produces more corn than any state in the country. Um, And uh, most distilled spirits are made from corn, certainly American whiskey uh, made from corn. And... um, Yet, in Iowa, we were importing 100% of the spirits we were consuming. Right. So I th- uh, thought to myself, let's, uh, let's start a distillery and let's make whiskey and maybe Iowa someday will be an exporter of spirits, not an importer. Um, and, but uh, but that, that's kind of how distilleries started, right? Because farms had uh, this excess of, yeah. or uh, they have a surplus, right, of grains. Yeah. And it was much easier to, tr- to make money and transport uh, their grains and, uh, as as a, as a spirit rather than and so it's so cool to see like old farms now coming together and and making a living from making spirits. It's yeah, a really would, cool thing. I think I would think maybe centuries ago uh, they probably did a little bit of distilling. Probably uh, that was good trade, right? Right, good currency exactly. with the, with the right person. That's exactly uh, what it was. It was currency. A, a few bottles of spirits, yeah, right. for, but, for whatever else they needed. But it was so it was so much more, uh, I guess, cost efficient for them to to make a spirit out of it because it's easier to transport. You don't have to, you know, if you're transporting this stuff, grains, say, on on horseback, you can only get so much with one horse. But with a grain, you know, with the, with the spirit, you can do a lot more. It, yeah, and it's more valuable for a smaller volume of product, you know? Yep. So I, I, I think that's amazing. Yeah, so uh, 
we opened our doors in 2005. Uh, you know, it took us a year to a year and a half to get all the licensing done. Like in, in a, uh, even the the federal TTB, you know, wasn't yeah. that good at it back then. And yeah. uh, at the state level, they didn't really know how to do it. They didn't know what to do, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, away we went. And uh, early on, Brian, we um, uh, started selling whiskey fairly quickly. And what we realized, and it seems simple to explain it, but until you've been through it, you don't ever really grasp it, I don't think. Um, you, when you make your own whiskey, not buy your own whiskey, when you make it, um, if you sell it at the same pace you're making at it, you can't grow. Right. You know, if you're selling at the same pace you're making it at, what you're saying you is you have grow. you have to lay down a lot for the future, and and, yeah. and you got to forecast how much you're going to yeah. sell yeah. in the future, right? So, right. So because uh, it takes time for instance, to make this, this stuff. year, we've turned down quite a number of significant opportunities because right. if we sell it this year, a uh, we can't sell it next year, and b our product gets younger. Right. We, you know, we're trying to make our product get older. Right. And so... Uh, so, so how do you deal with that? Yeah. So, well, this year we'll sell a little over 20,000 cases, probably 25,000 cases, but we'll make about 65, 65 to 68,000 cases for the future. Right. Uh, so... But, well, but you're putting them in barrels right that's now, right. right? You're not mm -hmm. putting them in the yeah. bottle. Yeah. What, what it took us a while to realize is... You know, the sales team is selling what production made three years ago. Yeah. And production's making right now for what the sales team is going to sell three to five years from now. Yeah, the, 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 you the separate sales the two. team and the marketing team and the production team got very different. Well, right, not right. very different, but they have they have different uh, objectives, I guess yeah, you said. <laughs> they got to communicate because you got to make the right thing. Yeah. Uh, for instance, um, in Iowa, about 50 to 55% of our spirits sales is bourbon. Hmm. So we've always made about 50% bourbon. As we've started distributing nationally, though, um, that percentage isn't holding true. I think it's because people are less familiar with Cedar Ridge, so they, they sell more evenly. We have four whiskey expressions, the bourbon, the malted rye, uh, the, the single malt, which is the barley, and then the wheat. Um, and so what we're finding is as we distribute nationally, um, it's a little bit more of an even uh, sale across those four whiskeys. So now we're adjusting production in the future, um, a little less bourbon, because we think that'll be the trend um, right. nationally. But you know, if they come back to bourbon, then so so it's quite a well it's, it's quite it's a hard, game. it's hard to imagine Americans not embracing bourbon. You yeah. know, like that's uh, that'll always be there. And it's but. it's. To this day, it's my favorite of our whiskeys and our, our bourbon. I, I love the single malt, Amer the American single malt category. I think is so exciting, and I think there's so much room for growth. And I think it's, I think it's a really exciting category, and yeah, ours, I, I can't wait to try yours. So <laughs> you know, we make a great bourbon. We make it from our family corn. Our single malt, however, um, last fall, um, the uh, New York. World Wine and Spirits Competition named it the best American craft whiskey. All right. Um, this you. month, wine enthusiasts gave it a 95 point rating, uh, which they don't hand out a lot of 95s. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, with things like that going on, yeah, there's pressure on our single malt. Um, All right. But, you know, 
we can't mess with the volume of our single malt because of the way we make it. So mm. it'll be in short supply probably for the next several years. Right. But that's we just can't release it until it's ready. We we yeah. did that once well, six or seven that's years ago. That's what you ago. call integrity, my friend. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's amazing to me how fast the consumer adjusts to is the product good or is the product not good. Uh, I would have guessed when I got into this business 12, 13 years ago, just because of the thrill of craft that you could fool them a bit. And what we learned in a hurry is you can't. Yeah. You can't. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be good product. Well, they, yeah, the, the, the consumer is uh, much more sophisticated now than they were maybe 10, certainly 15 years ago. I think so. Yeah. And which is a great thing. Yeah. I, I think it's a great thing. And one thing that I think they're starting to catch on to is that of the 1,300 companies that call themselves craft distillers, only a small fraction of them actually produce craft whiskey. Produce Most their of them own, are just, produce their own just producing a craft label. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. Well, that's that's another issue. How the how the label can really sort of. Uh, I don't want to say fool people, but you know, influence people for sure. Um, and it and the label's important, you know. It, it's it's important. It's important part of the marketing process. But I don't know. I, I I just love those stories when it's just like you guys grow this stuff. You take the water from your own property, yes, and you, you know, which is a huge part of what's in your bottle, right? Is the water, and um, you're making this stuff all yourself. It's yeah, great. we have a 320 foot well on the property. Um, and then uh, we, f we filter it right on the property, and that's the water we use. Um, and as I said, the, the corn uh, in our bourbon is our family-grown corn. Mm. And then the, I hear about rye, and, that, and that's, um, I, I've heard that that like, bubbles up a lot, and it's like, hard to deal with. Very hard to work with. Yeah. yeah. Malted rye, not only to malt, but also e even uh, through, through, um, through the still. You know, it, it tends to want to foam during fermentation, but it'll also foam... Uh, in the stills uh, on you. So, yeah, it's not an easy product to work with, the malted rye. Well, should we taste a little? We should. What I have is I have five whiskeys I brought along. Um, we, we always say we make four, but I brought along some five-year reserve on the bourbon. Ah. Maybe we'll finish with that. And so I would say let's start with the wheat. It's the simplest of the expressions. So is this and, um, 100%? Wheat or yeah. so uh, that's a hundred percent malted wheat. Oh, yeah. okay. Yep. So we we uh, ha have no other grains in it, and that's why I said it's it's the simplest of the expressions because um, without a, a without a blend in it, it come it's pretty straightforward. Um, right. So really, I think what it is is it's an example of what a pure wheat whiskey tastes like because right. it's a pure wheat whiskey. Uh -huh. um, and so I get a simple sweetness, uh, definitely sweet but a little, across um, the palate. A little bit of spice and, um, yeah, I get a and little earth and, yeah, you know. I get some dough in there. Mm -hmm. Oh, very nice. Lately, that's gotten a lot of attention, the wheat. And, uh, frankly, it's it's probably 8 or 9% of our sales. It's, you know, it's not a... We, we just we were working with the other grains and um, we had some wheat so we started making some wheat and you know what we just we've kept making it that's fun she's got a dump bucket over there and we'll do some malted rye all right we're having some delicious oysters here by the way please 
indulge. Yeah, I'm going to eat them all. If you don't. <laughs> I know. That's so good. <laughs> Thank you. So this is the malted rye? Mm-hmm. Cheers. You know, there's a lot of rye out there, and a lot of it comes from the same place. Yeah. A lot of the ryes are um, really often an MGP product. Yeah. Now, there's some people out there making their own, but we just didn't want to throw another rye in the market. Yeah. So when we were deciding on our rye, we went, went ahead with a malted rye. I think that malted rye maybe brings out a little more of a biscuity, toasty finish. I get a little graham cracker on the finish. And maybe not quite as spicy as some ryes. It's nice. It's a little more complex. Uh, I guess the malting process maybe adds that, but uh, it's... Um a little creamier, a little, uh, yeah, baking spices, and that's that's great. I'm a big fan of rye. Okay. So, oh, can I explain to you how we make the single malt? Please. So, it's 100% pure malted barley. Uh, as I mentioned, we get all of our uh, grains, uh, other than our corn, uh, from Cargill. And uh, we distill it twice. We put it in um, bourbon casks for around two years maybe more. And then um, then we uh, take it out of the initial cask, okay? And we give it a second cask treatment. But we break it into uh, fractions. We take a portion and we put in X wine casks or port casks. We right. make wine and port, so we oh, have okay. those. Uh, we make some rum. We've always made some rum, so we have some X rum casks. We have some X brandy casks, okay? So we break our lot, and then some of it goes into a second whiskey cask, okay? One out of every eight barrels um, is a peated barrel, okay? So you'll get about 12.5% peated in this, which you got to look for it. It's in there, but, you know, it doesn't overtake you. You can pick up a little bit of the peatiness in there. Okay. Wait, so wait, where do you get your peat from, though? Is that, is that we a... We buy peated. We, we run oh. peated once in a while, yeah. Oh, okay. And we do get it from Cargill, and, you know, I think they must get it from Scotland because it's... Yeah, uh, I don't know of any uh, peating operations here, so right. it, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sure it's Scottish. But uh, so there's some peated in there. But after another year or two in that second cask, then we marry um, a given lot into our big oak Solera vat. Okay. We fill the vat up, okay, with this combination of different finishes. Yeah. And then we wait a few months and we bottle it halfway down. Uh huh. Then we fill it back up. We wait a few months and we bottle it halfway down. So we never get rid of, uh, we never empty the vat. We yeah. only go halfway down before we refill it. So that, I think, is what has lended to some of the, the awards and the, the, the complexity that we get in our single molds. It's a lot of work. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> it's a ton of work. Really well done, sir. I wish I had a lot more of that. Oh. That's the thing. I'm not dumping that one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. We have more glasses. <laughs> All right, two left. Oh, jeez. <laughs> two left, and we'll get to these oysters. Uh-huh. I've been kind of eating them on the way. These are amazing, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, our server uh, highly recommended these grilled oysters, and I was a little skeptical. I was like, I like raw oysters, and they are amazing. All right, so what do we, ha what do we have here? This is our bourbon. Oh, this is a bourbon. Yep. Okay. So this is our uh, flagship product. Uh, made from our corn, and uh, it's 74% corn, 14% rye, 12% malted barley. Okay. Ah, oh, that's lovely. Yeah, thanks. I'm spoiled, man. I drink a lot of... 
I get to drink a lot of good whiskey. Yeah, and, you have to uh, do a lot of hard work, don't you? I know, I know. If this is work... So, um, we did bring along some five-year, okay. and we, we don't have a lot of five-year. Uh, it actually, very spotty distribution across the country. So, uh, would this be the same same juice? It, it just, is, it's the exact same just, stuff. Just uh, aged a little longer? Yep, because we're at about three years on our regular bourbon, and this uh-huh. would be five, five, in the and five it, to six range. Today, I see before, are you using full-size barrels? With yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. We standardized on the 53-gallon barrel uh, probably in 2009. I think got it's about so interesting. 2,000 barrels full right now. It's so interesting that this is, you know, that full-size 55-gallon approximately barrel thing has been going on for so long, and nobody's really found a way to improve on it in all these years, you know, and it's that still still seems to be the best way to do it. We get, uh, get them by the semi-truck load from Independent Staves Company, uh, charred number three. Okay. And uh, we've been using those for years. Well, delicious products, sir, and thank Thanks. you for uh, sharing them with me and uh, and sharing your story with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. There you have it. And as I said, this is the third of nine episodes of All About Tales of the Cocktail 2017. So I hope you're subscribed. There's lots more to come. Hey, we do a toast every week at the very end of the show. Stand by for that. But first, a uh, couple things you might be interested in. Bar Smarts Advance is coming to Nashville on November 2nd, 2017. Highly recommend this course. You do it online first. Uh, you do the online course first, I should say. And then you're eligible to take the one-day uh, one course live and in person in, in Nashville on November 2nd, 2017. It's uh, coming up not, not all that far away. So uh, this is a great course and can't recommend it enough. Also, Bar Institute, they're uh, touring around, and they just finished up in Dallas recently. The next, they head to Toronto, August 14th through 16th. They'll be in San Juan, Puerto Rico, September 25th through 27th. Portland, Oregon, in the October 23rd through 25th. And in New York City, November 13th through 16th. So that's another great event, and uh, it's cool that they take it on the road, and hopefully there's a location near you well worth going for great education and great events. If you want some great education and you can't make it to either of these courses, or if you want to do it additionally to these things, you can get some great learning by doing the Mixology Certification Program online from our friends at A Bar Above. With the discount code BARTENDERJOURNEY without a space, you can save 20% off the $127 course. You'll learn a lot from this course, and you take a test at the end, and assuming you pass that test, you'll get a certificate. So you can do it from anywhere, and you can do it whenever you like. So uh, that is well worth doing. Do I sound a little different today? I got something called the Newer Vocal Booth NW7. It's not really a vocal booth, but uh, it's a thing that clips onto the microphone stand and sort of surrounds the mic a little bit in order to reduce echo and outside noises. Uh, So I I hope I sound a little better today, Uh, better than usual. (laughs) Uh, Hey, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, I have some gear recommendations, including this little device here uh, at bartenderjourney.net slash gear. I also have a course you can purchase now at uh, bartenderjourney.net slash podcast course without a space or anything between podcast and course. So uh, hopefully you'll check that out if you're interested. Hopefully you listened to last week's episode where we presented at Tales of the Cocktail our seminar, Hot Mike Podcasting for Bartenders. So I hope you got a chance to listen to that. All right, here's our toast, and it's from our book, Toasts, Over 1,500 of the Best Toast Sentiments, Blessings, and Graces by Paul Dixon. Here's our toast. May you have warmth in your igloo, oil in your lamp, and peace in your heart. Cheers. We'll see you next time on the Bartender Journey Podcast.